At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care, and we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's not about the corner office. It's not about the fancy title. It's not even about the extra money. Responsible leadership is about taking care of those who choose to follow you, and that care takes on many forms. This podcast is dedicated to bringing you the best guests with the best advice to help you succeed in that endeavor. The Responsible Leadership Podcast is a production of The Leadership Phalanx. To find out more about me and what I do, visit leadershipphalanx.com. That's leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. And now, on to today's show. Well, listeners, and welcome to this episode of the Responsible Leadership Podcast. I've got a great guest lined up for you today that I'm really excited to get a chance to talk to, and I hope that you all uh, enjoy what they have to say as well. And that guest is me. Um, I've got a lot of questions uh, over the past couple of years doing this show, and I uh, thought it'd be a really good time to finally get into some of those. Now, I've answered a few of these kind of sprinkled out through episodes uh, over the past uh, couple years, but I thought it'd be a really good idea to pull together an episode and really talk about who I am what a phalanx is, which is a question I get a lot, uh, what the shields are, where they came from, who they're for, and then talk a little bit about what services I actually offer here at the phalanx. So that's me. You're going to get me. Uh, strap in. I hope this is going to be as entertaining of a conversation as uh, you're used to with all of the other great guests that I've had on the show. Uh, but let's dive in. Who is Earl Breon? If you listen to the show, you've heard a little bit of my story uh, before, so I'm not going to go into super duper detail here, but I'm going to give you the the highlights. Uh, so I'm a country boy from Northeast Tennessee. I grew up in a small town, Irwin, uh, in Unicoi County. We're right up in the tip of Northeast Tennessee. I could get to North Carolina, South Carolina, Virginia, Kentucky in 30, 45 minutes at most from, from my front door. Uh, so spent a lot of time throughout the Great Smoky Mountains. Uh, my hometown lies right on the Appalachian Trail. Uh, so got a chance to walk sections of that just throughout my hometown. And if you ever get a chance to walk the trail, especially through Tennessee, the Great Smoky Mountains area, you got to do it. It is just beautiful sight. So shout out to my hometown, Irwin, Tennessee. Um, beautiful town. 
If you ever get a chance to go with some of the nicest people you ever want to meet in your life, yeah, I talk a little bit about some of our kind of ugly history and past, um, but, you know, it's good people. They're good country people, and I love every one of them. I'm proud, as, uh, as Kenny Chesney says, I'm proud of where I come from. Uh, so that's where I grew up. My leadership journey really started there. I was working for, uh, and some of the folks from home that are listening, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about here, but I worked for a, a company called Jones and Church Tomatoes Shed. Uh, it was Jones and Church Farms, but I worked at the tomato shed for them. And that was a place where the migrant workers would come in and they would pick the fields and then they would bring the tomatoes into the shed to get sorted and packed and all that kind of good stuff. So I think that was really kind of where my my passion, if you will, for getting to experience other cultures set in because the jobs I had there put me really in close proximity with those migrant workers, almost 100 uh, percent migrant workers from Mexico that would come to the area and move between there and Florida and Georgia, kind of chasing the different crops. And I remember being extremely impressed with how familial uh, these folks were and how hardworking they were. And I wanted to learn more. I wanted to be a part of that. Um, so I did everything I could to, to get in good with, with some of those folks. And I still have, um, you know, a lot of folks that, that I have great memories of. Um, you know, I, I still think, and if you're listening, uh, Patricio, you know, some of the things that you introduced me to, man, with, with the food and the culture, it was just amazing. Um, but it was also there that I got my first leadership experience. I got promoted to be in charge of what's called the box loft, which made, you know, if you ever buy tomatoes in bulk, they come in those big 25 pound boxes of tomatoes. We made all those cardboard boxes that tomatoes got packed in. And, you know, it wasn't an overly difficult job. It was physically taxing. Uh, but there was a lot of accountability that had to go on because if those boxes don't get made, that's the backbone, right? There's, it doesn't matter if the grading is happening. It doesn't matter if the sorting is happening. It doesn't matter if the washers are working. It doesn't matter any of that stuff. If there's no boxes to put them in, we're done. And that was really the gravity of the situation I fell as soon as I got promoted into that. The thing that didn't really sink into me right off the bat was being 15, getting ready to turn 16, and being put in charge of men uh, twice plus my age. You know, again, like I said, I was 15, getting ready to turn 16, and most of these folks were, uh, you know, in their early to mid-30s. And, you know, I didn't know how to lead. I didn't know how to manage uh, a small team, where there were like four or five of us there, depending on how many uh, pushers we had and how fast we were running. So I made a lot of mistakes in the beginning. I tried the the command and control authoritarian thing, and I tell you what, uh, that doesn't work so well when you're that young trying to tell folks twice plus your age what to do and how to do it. Um, so I figured I needed influence. I needed to figure out how to influence these folks, how to get them to want to do what I needed them to do because I couldn't tell them what to do. And uh, so I started doing small things, right? I mean, I would notice that these guys would be tired and I would ask, you know, hey, what's going on? And I start hearing stories about home life and how this was their second or third job and all this other good stuff. And, you know, I would do little things like I would pitch in and say, hey, look, you know, go ahead, nod off. You know, we had an area there where you could safely 
just kind of relax for a little bit. Just, you know, take five or 10 minutes, take a little cat nap, whatever you got to do, I'll cover your station. And it was these little things of like taking care of them uh, that got them to want to follow me. And I was sitting there like, hey, there is something to this. So I started looking for more ways and, you know, all sorts of things. You know, I could list a whole bunch of them. It was just having conversations and building relationships with them that really closed that age gap and got them to want uh, to listen to me. And I noticed by the end of that first season that, you know, I didn't have to say, hey, do this, do that. Folks were looking for the things that needed to be done. And if I did need something done, all I had to do was ask and at least a couple of hands would go up. And that felt much better than trying to control folks. So fast forward a couple years, I go into the United States Marine Corps. I'm a Marine Corps veteran. And they start teaching us these uh, principles of leadership. And it was a lot of these things that I'd kind of already naturally discovered through that experience. And they really stuck with me. Okay. That was when I really really gravitated towards in my Marine Corps career. I was uh, I was a weather guy. The The job series doesn't exist anymore. I was a 6821 weather observer. So shout out to any 6821s who are listening. Uh, probably not that many. Um, but yeah, I was a Marine Corps weather guy. I took the observations that got fed into the forecast uh, that we use for operations. I had to carry top secret clearances. We had to go through all this courier training. It was pretty intense stuff. Weather sounds kind of mundane, but it was a pretty intense job because of the security behind it. And that was another key element is, is learning how to operate in such a high stress, intense environment where quite literally we had billions of dollars of material personnel uh, on the line and the lives associated with that and so it was bringing all these 11 uh these 11 principles together in that environment that really kind of i love leadership so i started reading all the books i can we had the commandant's reading list and i really gravitated towards that because i loved reading i was a huge reader in school shout out to pizza hut's book it program um but I was a big time reader and I met, I say met, I was introduced uh, to Stephen Pressfield's uh, works, his historical fiction works. And uh, one of them was uh, his his writings on uh, the Battle of Thermopylae, the Hot Gates. And I think the name of the book is actually called Gates of Fire, but Hot Gates is what Thermopylae meant, so to clarify there. That book really cemented for me the importance of history to leadership. Now, yes, I know that it is a historical fiction, but Pressfield has said that he goes and he tries to get as close to history as possible while making it entertaining. Because um, there's a lot of great stories in there, and there's ones that I've shared here. So fast forward um, a year or two into my career, uh, President Clinton signs the, an executive order mandating the anthrax vaccine. I take it like a good Marine and I start having adverse reactions. I start passing out for basically no reason. And, uh, you know, the Marine Corps, which I planned to make a career out of, Uh, decided that was no longer an option because we can't have people just randomly passing out in the field. So I got processed out on a general under honorable discharge 
sorry, I'm a veteran, but I don't have any great war stories. I served in peacetime, um, and the ending was not all that illustrious. But I had a set of skills, and those skills, not like Brian Mills and Taken, I can track people down across the globe, but those skills were leadership, leadership development, and performing in high-stress environments. And so I took that uh, to the federal civilian sector, and I worked uh, for the federal government for, for quite a few years. And I noticed not everybody had been exposed to that level of, of leadership development and leadership training that I had. And a lot of these folks were in key decision-making positions, but they didn't have those fundamental skills. Now, I'm, I want to stress that those fundamental skills. They had a lot of high-end skills, right? They had invested in, in some types of training, some types of leadership development, but they were very high level. And a lot of these folks didn't have those basic fundamental skills to make that high-level thinking work. And so I saw this, this uh, kind of opening there to, we have a house that's already built. My heavy lift is going to be come in and put that foundation under it so the house is more stable. And... That's where I really found my calling, was going in and helping some of these folks uh, with that and using those 11 leadership uh, principles and using that experience from the tomato shed and using the, the experiences I had being exposed to different cultures, not just at the shed, but through my Marine Corps experience. You know, the, the very first Muslim I ever met in my life was my rack mate in boot camp. And I go from having never met a Muslim to having to stay back with this uh, gentleman while he did his daily prayers, right? And that was an immersion in Muslim culture right off the bat. All sorts of different cultures. We had a kid from India. Uh, we had kids from all over the U.S. We had a lot of cultures. So I was able to bring all that together to develop some training kind of as an extra duty and people would start attending the training and they're like, man, this is some of the best training I've ever had. You should do this like for yourself. You should, you should be an entrepreneur. You should take this training uh, to the corporate world. And so that got me down the path of starting the leadership phalanx. And that really kind of catches up to where we are now and segues very nicely into question two. The second question I get asked quite a bit is, what is a phalanx and why did you choose it for your company's theme? Because almost nobody knows what it is. <laughs> and it's a fair question. It's a fair point. And phalanx is an old term. And yes, not a lot of people know what a phalanx is. As a matter of fact, with my accent, a lot of times people think that it is leadership failings like what we fail at at leadership. And you know what? I'm not going to argue with them because what I talk about is a lot of where, where leadership fails. But it's not leadership failings. It's leadership phalanx, P-H-A-L-A-N-X. And where does it come from? Well, I go back to Stephen Pressfield. He talks a lot about the Spartans and how they were able to hold back all of those uh, Persians at Thermopylae. And the short version of it is, is let's put some better historical context around it. Yes, there were only 300 Spartans, but they brought in, as they were marching to meet them, they had about 
estimates go anywhere from two to three to maybe five to seven thousand other surrounding uh, city-state soldiers that that joined them. Okay, so that's the first thing. It wasn't just the romanticized 300 Spartans that held off all those Persians. There were about any estimate between three to seven thousand troops there. Okay, so. But I don't want that to sound like it's disparaging that number because on the other side, there weren't three to four million like some stories tell. There were probably a good two to three hundred thousand at most Persians. So you still have a huge odds here, right? Seven thousand versus two to three hundred thousand. But what he talks about and what the Spartans were known for was their shield formation, that shield wall, that phalanx, that that. Uh, line of front line interlocking shields to protect everybody and then the folks behind the way that the uh, formation works those long spears they were able to reach out through the shield wall and fight the enemy from a safe relatively safe distance and this formation these interlocking shields really gave them an advantage because it was it was like having a mobile bunker Okay, and as long as that line held, the Spartans were nearly unbeatable. Now, if you could break that line, then it turned into a route pretty quick. But that that was the key to their success, that wall of shields, that phalanx. So that's what that is. That's that formation, the phalanx, the interlocking shields. And I started thinking back to those 11 principles. I say, you know what? They work very much like that. If you interlock all 11 of these principles strong together, you have this impenetrable wall of leadership. You have this impenetrable wall of leadership. But if you break one of those, if you let one of those shields drop, things can start to fall apart really quick. And so in my mind, those things really gelled, right? this idea of the phalanx and these principles as shields. So what I did is I set out uh, to what I call civilianize those shields. And that is why I kind of coalesced this company around Spartan iconography and this concept of the phalanx and shields. Because I do believe that if you do all 11 of these shields of the phalanx, you keep your shields up and solid, you keep them interlocked together, that just like the Spartans, you can withstand pretty much any onslaught by keeping these things solid. Um, they, they work in any environment, and we'll get to that because that's another question I have later on. I don't want to give too much away here right now. But I think that's the big thing about what is the phalanx and why did you choose it? It's such a strong symbol. It says so much just in the iconography. That's why I use the shields to symbolize each one of them because that's what they are. They're part of that phalanx. And um, as we go through them here in a little bit, you'll see why that is so valuable and why that is so important. All right, so the next question. What are the 11 shields of the phalanx? I get asked that question a lot, again, because not a lot of people know what the phalanx is, and I think I did a pretty decent job already of explaining that, but uh, essentially the 11 shields of the phalanx are those 11 leadership principles that the DOD teaches civilianized. 
And what do I mean when I say civilianize? Um, in all honesty, I really just kind of changed some of the terms around a little bit to, to sound a little bit more workplace friendly versus military friendly. Uh, but let me go ahead and, and list those off here. And these are in no particular order because none of them are necessarily more important uh, than another. And that's one thing I really like to stress when I'm training on these shields. They are all important. You need all of them. Remember me talking about the Spartan phalanx. All of the shields working together presented the strongest front. It's the same thing here. So these are in no particular order. Please do not impart any type of importance to them based on how I read them. But here they are. You are always on display, introspection and improvement, build relationships and look out for your people, be rational and decisive, be a power broker, information is power, train how you want to perform, play to your team's strengths, Define success, empower team members, and achieve results. Create an environment for success. Look for opportunities and own the outcomes. And stay technically and tactically relevant. So those are the 11 shields, right? And they may sound very easy on the surface. And to be completely honest, they kind of are, right? I tell everybody I coach with, I said, the one thing... There's going to come a time that that you hate me, and that's going to be when we're a few months down the road and you realize that you already knew everything that we're talking about. All I did was help you realize that you knew it, because these are things that most of us intuitively know. They're, they're things that we intuitively look for out of our leaders, and, and that's really how simple I put it when I talk to folks. It's like, be the leader you want to work for. You know, we've got the, the golden rule that says treat others how you want to be treated. We got the platinum rule that says treat others how they want to be treated. Well, I go with the titanium rule because, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's not as necessarily precious as some of those other metals, but it's a lot harder. It's a lot sturdier. And it is lead the way you want to be led. I mean, it's really that simple. Nobody wants to be led by a dictator. So don't be a dictator. Nobody wants to be led by a jerk, so don't be a jerk. And these shields, they they work together to really kind of help you not be that type of leader. For instance, if you remember that you were always on display, you're going to know that when you're out in town with your family and you decide to maybe get in a fit of road rage and start flipping people off, that you could have one of your uh, one of your employees watching you, or you could have uh, somebody up the chain from you watching, or you could have a colleague that just happens to be driving by and sees you acting a fool. You're less likely to act a fool. If you remember that you were always on display when you're in the grocery store and you see that person that needs help, you're more likely going to be the person that offers the help because you want your team to be people that offers help to one another. So you want to model that behavior. When you remember that you were always on display, it gives you uh, kind of a an innate check against your behavior. Is this something that I want everybody seeing or is it not? If yes, proceed. If no, let's think about it a little harder. 
Um, introspection and improvement. You know, we have a lot of folks talking about mindfulness and meditation and all those things, and I'm all for it. History has shown us that uh, meditation, mindfulness, these aren't new fads, right? These are things that have been around for a really, really long time. But where a lot of people miss the boat is they just want to meditate and they want to do this insight, introspective journey, but then they do nothing with the information. They don't take time to improve on those things that were revealed to them through that process. Build relationships and look out for your people. You know, that one is as simple as just having real, meaningful conversations. Not just stepping back, not just saying, you know, talking to them during performance review time, not just talking to them when something is wrong, but talk to them on a constant basis. Stop. Talk about sports. If they're not into sports, talk about music. If they're not into music, talk about a TV show. If they're not into a TV show, find something. Everybody has something that they're into, even if it's not what you're into. This is a great opportunity when somebody says, you know what? I'm not into baseball. I'm not into hockey. I'm not into basketball, but I really love cricket. Oh, I don't know anything about cricket. Can you tell me more about the sport? I've always wanted to get into it. I just don't understand it. Give them an opportunity to share their world with you and listen, right? And listen, that's the important thing. And no, nobody's saying you got to go out and start buying all this cricket gear and become a fan, but watch a game every once in a while. Ask some questions. Show genuine, authentic interest in what matters to your team. Then you can use that information to look out for their welfare. Now, there's a plethora of ways we can do that, and we talk about it deep in the coaching, but using the scenario I just threw out there, instead of planning out an office trip to a baseball game, see if there's a cricket game nearby. Plan a trip to that. Yes, it's for that one employee, but you never know. There could be several other employees that are on the fence about cricket, and giving this employee a chance to share their likes, their culture with their other teammates can be a huge bonding moment. This is why you have the conversations, you glean the information, and you use it to look out for welfare. Be rational and decisive, right? I like to talk about this as the law of proportional decision making. Take the appropriate amount of time to make a decision based off uh, the, the level of potential outcomes right? If the decision is going to have a life-altering trajectory for the organization, you want to take more time to make that decision. If it's something that's really, you know, hey, do we get French vanilla creamer or pumpkin spice creamer? That's not something you really want to get bogged down in because it doesn't matter. Those things are cheap. Get both. That way people can pick what they want. But we spend too much time making decisions that really don't matter. And then we complain that we don't have enough time on the decisions that do. Being rational and decisive says you're going to take in all the information that you can. You're going to process it. You're going to put it through your filters because now you have uh, introspection onto who you are and you know who your teammates are. So you're going to take in the information, filter it out rationally, and then you're going to make a decision and you're going to stick to it. You're not going to waffle back and forth. Oh, I want French vanilla. Well, but Susie wants... Uh, pumpkin spice. Well, but Johnny likes this. Buy three or four, make the decision, move on, take the creamer conversation off the table. Uh, be a power broker. Information is power. 
Very simple. As a leader, you have access to power. Do not hoard the power. Do not hoard the information. Share information. Unless it is information that you are morally, legally, ethically uh, obligated to keep quiet, share information with your team. Nature abhors a vacuum. It's going to fill it in with something. A lack of information is going to get filled in by gossip. And there's two things we know about gossip. It's never true and it's never good. Okay. So by sharing as much information, by sharing as much power as possible, you empower the rest of your team to know what's really going on and to not get bogged down by gossip. Uh, train how you want to perform. It's that simple, right? Train how you want to perform. You want to perform as a team? Create opportunities for your team to train as a team, okay? Don't create opportunities where little Johnny can go get his training and little Susie can go get her training separately. Create opportunities where you can train as a team. You want to function uh, well as a team? Create opportunities where people get to fill different team roles, this is a part of, of building relationships. Find out who enjoys being in charge, who likes being the support person, who likes being the logistical people. This is information that you can use to look out for their welfare. Okay, These training opportunities, whatever they may look like. Here's a little spoiler alert. Going out bowling is a training opportunity, right? Because it gives you the ability to function as a team. Even if you have two teams from the same office, you can kind of monitor and coach healthy uh, competition within the organization. That's training, right? Having people be able to compete for budget dollars, but still come together as friends at the end. You can do that a lot with competing on a bowling alley and having people come together at the end for some drinks and for some food. Train how you want to perform. There's no one way to do it. You got to find what works and fits for your folks. Play to your team's strengths. There's no way you can do that if you don't know who those people are and what their strengths and weaknesses are. Going back to building relationships. And you're part of the team. Introspection helps you figure out what yours are. You want to play to those strengths, right? People always want to say, well, let's focus on some weaknesses, okay? Unless it is a glaring weakness that is going to be detrimental to the team, leave it alone. Focus on strengths. We can make a lot more progress by focusing on people's strengths, putting them in positions to succeed. Those are the things that you want to do. We don't necessarily want to shine lights on people's weaknesses. We want them to be aware of them. Absolutely. But we don't want to put people in positions where they're going to fail because we put them in a weak spot. We want to play to our team's strengths. That's no one person. That's the entire team. Maybe you are a team of one. Maybe you have two. Maybe you have three. Maybe you have 20. Always play to the strengths of the team that you have. Define success, empower team members, and achieve results. One of the things that I see most people skip when they start a new project is failing to define success. They want to put out a process they want to give you a couple of metrics that you need to hit, but they never define success, right? We don't want to, they, they start off with, we don't want to spend this much money or we don't want to spend over this much money. That's our budget ceiling. These are the materials that we do have available. And these are the staff that we do have available. 
They never sit there and just say, look, what we want to do is we want to be the first company to put a man on Mars, right? When you just define what success looks like, we want to be the first company to put a man on Mars. You take all of those other restraints off and you let people be, uh, let, let innovation thrive. Let people be creative. You don't put these artificial barriers on innovation and creativity. So just define success at the end of this project. If we can do this, this is great because what this does is allows your people to look for opportunities to go above and beyond empower team members. Remember talking about training and finding out what people are good at, put the right people in the right positions to be able to function. This might mean sometimes that you as a leader have to set back and take a followership role. Be okay with that. Be a follower, but achieve results. You are still responsible for those results and you need to never give that piece up. Now that may sound a little contradictory, but what I'm talking about here is you're always going to be ultimately responsible due to the position that you're in period end of story. But that doesn't mean that you can't take on a followership role and empower somebody else to lead this project to get better results because they have a good, clear definition of success. And this is a strength of theirs over yours. And then when they need things pushed up the chain, that's when you can come in with your positional authority and help make that happen. So define success, empower team members, achieve results, create an environment of success. This one, again, sounds very simple, but it's not quite that easy because if you don't already have an environment of success, it's hard to overcome that, right? Um, we see this happen a lot of time in sports where a team just gets bogged down and they go on multi-year losing streaks because the culture becomes an environment of loss and it's hard to get people to want to come into that environment. And so it's hard to get people with a different mindset. And a lot of times it takes a complete reset. You can overcome that by creating an environment for success right off the bat. What does that mean? It means again, Creating an environment where people feel like they're valued, feel like they belong, feel like you know their strengths, feel like you're going to put them in positions to succeed, and you're going to help them uh, define success, achieve results, and you're sharing information, you're setting good examples. All of these things come together to give you an environment of success. That's the environment that successful people want to thrive in. Look for opportunities and own the outcomes. Um, hopefully you're starting to see now how all of these things interconnect, but the, you know, and I'm giving you very quick versions of all of these, um, but looking for opportunities and owning the outcomes, opportunities are everywhere. Growth potential is everywhere. We live in a time where change is changing faster than change has ever changed before. You have opportunities around every corner. Some of them are going to pan out and some of them aren't. Okay. You need to own the outcomes as the leader of the opportunities you expose your team to. If they succeed, then you need to share that success with them. Don't own it all for yourself, right? Share that. If they fail, you need to keep that on your own because you provided this opportunity. You're owning those outcomes, okay? Now, I, I teach a class on that about how to properly take ownership. 
It's not as easy as just saying, oh, my bad. Uh, I own it. It was my fault. That's true. But you have to know how to take ownership and what to do with what you learn through that process. And I teach a whole class on that. But the point here is keep your eyes open by knowing your team's strengths, knowing who you have, knowing what you can do. You can take advantage of these opportunities and achieve some great outcomes for the organization. And when it goes wrong, you still own it and you do it appropriately. And then the last one is stay technically and tactically relevant. Okay. And I use the word relevant on purpose. It doesn't say stay technically and tactically uh, expertise. It doesn't say stay technically and tactically authoritative. It says stay technically and tactically relevant. Okay. And the reason is, is because the higher up the food chain you go, the less important it is that you know everything about everything. And the more important it is that you know enough about everything to be able to keep a good pulse on the organization. Now, again, that may sound a little bit contradictory, but we go into some uh, depth in the full-blown class, and it'll make a lot of sense once we can get into that. So those are the 11 shields of the phalanx. Again, it was a very quick hit on there. Um, I, I do this class in a couple of different ways. I can do it in a couple hours where we do a little bit deeper than what we did now, but not a full depth. I can do it over the course of 12 weeks where, again, we go into a lot more depth. Or if you're feeling really saucy, we can go into a full-blown uh, partnership where uh, I work for your organization and we'll, we'll uh, stretch this out over a full year and we'll do a really, really deep dive into each one of these shields and why that they are so important. So where did these shields come from? Uh, that's uh, the next question I get asked a lot, and it's a very good question. I love history. Uh, I've, I'm a huge, huge history fan, and I think every problem that we are facing today has an answer that we've already found in history, and I do mean every problem. LGBTQ issues, or civilization solved those hundreds, if not thousands of years ago. We just forgot those lessons uh, of acceptance and not marginalizing people for their sexual preferences. That's just the truth. You can go look through history. We've done it. Um, racial issues. We've solved those before in societies and history. We've just forgot those issues. What it means to be a good employee and employer. We've solved those problems. We just forgot those lessons. And we have to rediscover those. These 11 shields trace their roots all the way back 26, 2700 years ago to the writings of Sun Tzu. Okay. Um, they have over that period of time been, uh, you know, taken, rewritten uh, to meet different cultures, different cultural needs. And most recently, as I mentioned, uh, the, the, D, the Department of Defense in the United States used uh, the 11 principles. Okay. Uh, but these 11 shields can trace their roots all the way back 2,700 years, and they've held true that entire time. To me, when I look back at history and I look at these uh, uh, 
these examples of how these things have held up over the, the entire time. And I share these stories throughout my, my training. I share the stories of, of King Leonidas. I share uh, the teachings of Miyamoto Musashi. Um, I share stories of Gene Kranz in the space program. I share stories all throughout history that show that these principles have, have stood the test of time. They become so much more valuable. And you realize that these aren't just things that somebody thought up, um, you know, in their home office. I didn't just sit in my office at the house and sit there and say, hey, these are 11 things that I think are valuable. These are 11 things that I can prove are valuable with historical context. And that's what the shields are and where they came from. They came from history. They came from examples. They came from leaders that we all read about um, through through school. Uh, we read about on our own. Other leaders, other modern leaders, quote these people in their modern writings. Uh, so that's where these shields came from. They came from history. The next thing I get asked is, who are these shields for? And a lot of people don't like this answer because there's this saying that says, if you're for everybody, you're for nobody. But I I call uh, the, the BS flag on this one because these shields are for everybody. And I mentioned how I uh, have kind of like the different versions of offerings of the shield, the couple hour seminar, the 12 the week program and the, the full year program. It's because these things are scalable. Uh, if you want me to come in and just do a quick seminar for uh, a quick refresher, they're for that crowd. If you want to put together a entry-level leadership development program for a 12-week course, they're for that crowd. If you want me to work with your C-suite in a very intensive uh, full-year relationship, they're for that crowd, okay? These are... 11 principles rooted in history that are proven time and time again to work together to make better leaders. Now, I always put it that way, make better leaders, because sometimes an organization, you know, they say, how is this going to make me a better scientist? Or how is this going to make me a better accountant? Or how is this going to make me a better insert profession here? The truth of the fact is these shields are not going to make you better at those jobs. Okay. So if that's what you're looking for, if you're looking for me to come in uh, to make your, your accounting firm better at being accountants, that's not what these do. But what they do is they make those people better leaders, which creates a better environment in your organization, which gives those people less stress, more engagement, more buy-in, and creates an environment where they can succeed, where they can thrive, where they can practice their craft a lot better. And that, by extension, makes them a better accountant, makes them better scientists, makes them better judge, makes them better police officers, right? So these aren't going to do it directly, but by putting together a culture and an environment where people can thrive, where people can succeed, where people can uh, flex their strengths, where people can uh, just be themselves, be part of an organization that they love, they're going to be better at those professions, okay? May not 100% make sense right now in this format, but I promise you when we get into 
uh, get into our topics in depth, it'll make a lot more sense. So these are for everybody. You know, this can be part of a very, a, a new hire first day class. How do I know that? That's where they taught us in the Marines. First day, they introduce us to the 11 leadership principles and they're with us throughout our entire career. They work from day one until retirement and even into retirement, right? Because here's the thing. A lot of people think about leadership now in the context of the four walls of the organization. And I always have somebody who's funny who's like, well, I work in a round building. Okay, well, they work in the entire sphere that you're in. Okay, we'll, we'll go with that. The point is leadership doesn't end when you leave the building. You're leading at home. You're leading in your church. You're leading at the grocery store. You're leading on the the drive to and from work. You're leading on social media. We lead in a multitude of aspects throughout the day that we're usually not even aware of. These aren't work skills. These are life skills. These are things that are not only going to make you better, uh, create that environment for better scientist accountants. They're going to create a better environment for, for husbands, for wives, for children, uh, for, for athletes, for students, for educators. These principles are, and I will stand by it because I have had people get on the pulpit and say, Earl, you need to, to really hone this down to a niche because not everything is, uh, not, nothing is for everybody. These are for everybody. Okay. That this is the truth. That's not me trying to sell a product. That's me being honest. These things have stood the test of time. They are for real. And that brings me to the last question I'm going to answer in this episode, uh, which is what services do you offer? Okay. I've talked about them a little bit already with the shields, how I offer it in, in some different stages there. But, uh, you know, I'll go over it again. It's, uh, I can do them in a seminar format, you know, just a couple hours talking with your team, kind of doing a quick introduction to each one of these more in depth than what you've heard here, obviously. Uh, but I can do it in a couple hour format. Uh, I can do it in a 12 week format where we work on each, each one a week and then have a brief out. And uh, that session is designed a little bit more for those entry uh, entry level employees and maybe those employees are just getting ready to transition into leadership management roles. Quick stat for you here on that. Um, you've probably heard me mention this on the podcast before, but you should be investing earlier in your leadership because most organizations don't. There's about a 10 year gap from the time somebody gets promoted into a management slash leadership role before they receive training. You don't want to be an organization with that gap. You want to have great leaders ready to promote into leadership roles that know how to lead people before you promote them than waiting 10 years after you promote them and the, the havoc that that can cause on your culture and your organization. So that, that uh, couple hour seminar and that 12 week course, those are critical, critical elements. But let's say you're an organization that's been around for a while. We come in with our uh, full year program and we really get into those are the folks I talk about where we build the foundation while the house is already there. We talk about what they already know, how all this stuff gels together, and you start seeing these light bulbs go off. Said, oh, well, you know, they sent us through this course and this makes sense as to why this should work 
but I didn't necessarily have the skills to pull off what this insert big figure was telling me. That's kind of more where the, the full-blown 12-month course is geared towards, is the people that have already had a lot of leadership development but really lack those fundamental skills to make that intensive training work. I mentioned I offer training on how to take ownership appropriately. That sounds like something that is very easy to do, but I promise you it's not. People do it wrong all the time, and they miss a lot of valuable insight for themselves and insight for their team that can make a lot of difference going forward. It is not as simple as saying, my bad, I own it, it's my fault. There's a lot more that goes into it, and I can help you and your team uh, go through that process and put a process in place to take ownership effectively. Um, then I do uh, some classes on, I, I am big into diversity and inclusion. And as I tell folks, I'm not into diversity and inclusion for the sake of diversity and inclusion. I'm into diversity and inclusion for the sake of success. Because what successful teams do is have diverse components where everybody feels as if they belong to the team, that they're included, that they're valued, and that they have a say. Diversity and inclusion is a key to success. We don't want diversity for the sake of diversity. We don't want inclusion for the sake of inclusion. We want real, meaningful, authentic diversity and inclusion to build stronger, more innovative, more successful teams. So I talk about a few different diversity and inclusion topics. We do talk about uh, biases, whether you want to call them unconscious, subconscious, or even in some cases, conscious biases. We talk about what those are, like on a real level. We're going to talk about what those are and why they're not inherently bad, okay? That's the key. They're not inherently bad. It's what you do with those biases or don't do that make them bad. So we can talk about some diversity and inclusion topics as well. Um, and then um, another piece that, that kind of fits in with that that is very near and dear to my heart is the concepts of of cognitive diversity and moral injuries. Very quickly put, cognitive diversity is putting the team that you've created to use to solve some of your uh, most complex problems as an organization. You've got a lot of thought power already, and if you're doing these shields, you're attracting a lot more of that type of talent. Now we got to learn how to use them better. And then moral injuries is... Uh, kind of tied into some of the diversity and inclusion pieces, but it's kind of a whole look at how our actions as leaders, how our actions as co-workers, and, and when I say leaders, I mean co-workers, I mean managers, I mean C-suite, I mean the janitor, I mean everybody. I do believe that everybody is a leader somehow. I always get to push back, well, I'm not a leader at work. You may not be a leader at work, and I'm going to say may, but you are a leader somewhere. You're a leader at home. You're a leader at your church. You're a leader some way to somebody, okay? With that comes the ability to inflict moral injuries on people, unbeknownst to us and sometimes unbeknownst to them. But we will dive deep into what those are how they get caused, what you can do to avoid them, and most importantly, what happens if somebody tells you that you have inflicted a moral injury on them. So those are the things I offer. We talk about the shields. Uh, we talk about cognitive diversity. We talk about moral injuries. We talk about taking ownership effectively. Um, and 
we can mold those programs after a consultation with you and your organization. We can kind of take some bits and pieces from some of those things and, and customize uh, something for you as well. Uh, not afraid to do that if you have a very specific need uh, to be met. Um, so anyways, thank you for being with me. I did not expect to necessarily talk for 50 minutes or so when I turned on the microphone here and uh, was going to talk about me and answer some of these questions, but they were good questions. Thank you for asking them. Uh, be sure to send me more questions. You can send them directly to me at Earl at Leadership Phalanx. I'm not going to spell it for you this time because you should know by now. Earl at Leadership Phalanx. Uh, there is also a mechanism here. If you're looking down uh, at the bottom of the, the show notes area, you should see a link that says uh, send a message. You can go through uh, Anchor, click that button, go through Anchor, and send me a verbal message that I can just drop into the, the show here. You can ask me a question that I can answer live on the show. Look, folks, this has been fantastic. Um, I hope you've had fun learning a little bit more about me and what I can do uh, and where these philosophies that I teach kind of come from. Uh, thank you, as always, for being great listeners and doing all the great things that you do to support the show. I appreciate the reviews. I appreciate the shares. I appreciate all of the ratings, all of the things you do as great listeners. Keep it up. I really appreciate it. And thank you for making this show such a pleasure uh, to produce and, and send to y'all. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Another great show about responsible leadership. I really appreciate you listening. And if you have any feedback for me, please reach out at earl at leadershipphalanx.com. That's E-A-R-L at leadership, P-H-A-L-A-N-X.com. Thank you for rating, reviewing, subscribing, and sharing the show so these messages can spread further and make a bigger impact. With that, I look forward to speaking with you again in the next episode. Ever thought about starting your own podcast? Do you have a business or a message you want to share with the world? Well, now it's easier than ever with Electricast. Hi, I'm Mark Netter. And I'm Peter Rafelson. We're the founders of Electricast Media. Whether you want to start a new podcast or already have one, join Electricast to grow your audience, monetize your content, and build your community. With our simple sign-up, you get free promotion, world-class analytics, premium ads, and personal support. Go to Electricast.com and join our community today. Electricast. Transform your influence. Electricast. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an Electricast production. Electricast. Electricast.